Welcome to this podcast by the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, NISA. I'm Paola Buonadonna. With the triggering of Article 50, the UK gives official notice of its intentions of leaving the EU nine months after the referendum. I've been talking to five colleagues here at the Institute to try and make sense of the challenges ahead. I started with James Warren, a NISA fellow who works on our forecasting team. I wanted to find out what is the macroeconomic outlook for the UK economy as we transition through this process. So, James, first of all, let's paint a picture of where the UK economy has been since the referendum. The UK economy has been largely uh, robust since the referendum. Uh, We've had good growth rates in both the, the third and the fourth quarter, and it looks that this will continue into the first quarter of this year. Uh, consumption has largely been driving this, though. It's uh, households that are the, the key driver of GDP at the moment. We have relatively weak investment uh, since the third quarter, and the immediate aftermath of the of the referendum, we saw a depreciation of the pound, a very sharp depreciation of the pound, and subsequently this has depreciated somewhat further. Now, what this, this has done is this has increased the price of, of imported goods, and we've seen this begin to feed through into inflation. Inflation has begun to spike up. What we haven't seen on the other side, though, is uh, an increase in exports. Now, we would expect this because the price of, of UK goods abroad is now much cheaper than it was before, and we should, would normally expect an increase in exports as a result, but this hasn't happened as yet. So what do we have to look forward from now on? We expect that inflation will, will go above 3% this year. Um, this will put pressure on, on, on households. And as inflation rises, if wages don't increase in line with this, households can afford less uh, than they previously would be able to. So we expect that consumption will begin to moderate throughout the year. And this itself will lead to a moderation in GDP. We think that exports will pick up somewhat over the year. The uh, gains to competitiveness, the cheaper price of UK goods, will lead to exports uh, an increase in export growth. While the... Uh, the, the increased cost of imports will, will lead to a fall there, which means that there'll be a narrowing of that trade deficit. This is somewhat of a, a rebalancing of growth, but not in a positive way. It's, uh, it, it's weaker growth, not terrible growth. We still think it's going to be quite robust, but uh, below what we think potential growth for the economy is. And how do you think that the negotiation itself, you know, the next 18 months to two years, will impact on the UK economy? The answer to this is that it's quite uncertain. It depends very much on the nature of, uh, of the negotiations between Europe and the UK. Um, if these are amicable and uh, both sides get a good deal or they come to a, an arrangement that's mutually uh, beneficial, then there's no reason that we couldn't be back to something akin to business as usual. Um, it's not as good as being in the European Union, but not terrible. On the other hand, if these, if these negotiations are perceived, certainly, by, uh, by the markets in general as, as being bad, then this could have a, a much longer effect over investment decisions, reallocation or relocation, rather, of, uh, of firms should they need to. Um, and this could could have quite a, a severe impact on the, on the economy. The growth we expect to turn back to... Uh, to the UK's long-run average eventually, um, but we expect there to be a loss in terms of uh, standard of living, albeit it may be relatively moderate. You mean no matter what happens, no matter what kind of deal we reach? Yes, indeed. We think that uh, all of the deals are slightly worse at the, at the better end than being within the European Union, and at the, the, the very bottom end will be much worse for standard of living. What, do, what does that mean in practice? In, in practice, it means that, that in comparison, we will be less rich.
And when it comes to our future prosperity, one of the crucial aspects of the negotiations is what kind of trade agreement Britain will have with the rest of the EU. Dr. Monique Bell is a NISA Associate Research Director who has done a lot of work on Brexit and trade. Well, Theresa May has announced the UK's intention to leave the single market. What we do know is that the single market is the most comprehensive free trade agreement, that major free trade agreement that covers services. The EU has gone quite a long distance, a long ways toward reducing non-tariff barriers. That's especially important for such a service and knowledge-based economy like the UK. However, what we don't know is what kind of a trade deal we'll be able to strike with the EU, and we also don't know what kind of free trade agreements we'll be able to negotiate with third countries. And even if we did know what those trade deals looked like, we would still find it quite challenging to understand what their impact would be. There are two reasons for this. One is we still don't have a very good understanding of what elements of the single market are particularly important for generating trade. We would, of course, like to know this when we start negotiating trade agreements. So this is work that we're um, planning to be doing in the next, over the next months and year. The other reason is that there's, there are very few precedents for trade agreements that go beyond just reducing tariffs and really get at the kinds of non-tariff barriers that are important for services. But what if we don't manage to negotiate any deal? What if we crash out of the EU single market and then have to revert to trading following WTO rules? What would happen then? Well, the research that we've done is able to tell us what would the declines in trade from leaving the single market be for the average EU economy? Now, those declines we've estimated at around 60% of the UK's current trade with the EU. That means about 30% of its total trade. But again, that's assuming that the UK is the average EU country. Now, is the UK the average EU country? In many important respects, probably not. We are much more of a service-based economy. We also do very, very well on all of the rankings, say by the OECD or the World Bank, on flexibility of our labor and product markets. Now, those flexible product markets might have helped the UK benefit more than average from single market membership, so we might then have more than average to lose by leaving. Equally, however, we might, that flexibility might allow us to trade more without a free trade agreement, so then we might have less to lose than the average. Also, our flexible markets might make it easier for us to reorient our economy after Brexit. So it may well be that to compensate for those declines in trade, Britain will have to make its economy even more open, even more flexible. But this will present other challenges, according to NISA's Director of Macroeconomics, Dr Angus Armstrong. The Prime Minister faces a very difficult dilemma. She has to make Brexit a success. Now, for a traditional approach to conservative economic policy that really is a combination of liberalisation, deregulation and a promotion of a laissez-faire free market approach to economics. The difficulty with this 
is that most of the removal of tariffs and deregulation will have a heavier burden on Scotland than the rest of the UK. So the textiles, beverages, agricultural industries have a higher representation in Scotland than in the rest of the United Kingdom. And this, of course, is what is fueling this uh, renewed request for a second Scottish independence referendum. So Prime Minister May is faced with a trade-off. On the one hand, based on a conservative approach to economics, they want to have a, a real success of Brexit, so go towards reducing tariffs. But on the other hand, being the Conservative and Unionist Party, they want to keep the United Kingdom together. And the risk is following one path might uh, uh, lead to the second Scottish referendum. Uh, and hence, they've got a, a dilemma in terms of the direction of economic policy. How is this going to be resolved? Well, there's two ways it can be resolved. One is that the PM remains resolute and continues in the approach. And it looks like that's going to lead, if she does, to a second Scottish referendum. That will take place after we have left uh, the European Union. But of course, we'll have to see how negotiations go. It'd be quite easy to make a strong case for staying in Europe if the negotiations become difficult. The other approach is the Prime Minister decides to take a, a more conciliatory tone and think about other models of Brexit leaving the European Union but leaves a closer relationship with the single market than the government and its leading ministers at the moment are contemplating. One of the cornerstones of the single market, of course, is freedom of movement. And as we all know, a desire to control migration has been one of the clearest signals the government has given so far about its Brexit strategy. Dr. Heather Rolf is Anissa's Associate Research Director who specialises in the area of migration. Heather, what should the government's priorities be as far as immigration is concerned once the negotiations are finally underway? Well, we've been getting a very strong message from employers that clarity is needed about the status of existing EU citizens within the UK. There are over three million of them, and many of them are in very vital roles um, within workplaces across the UK. So, for example, the finance sector has quite a high proportion of workers from the old EU countries. Meanwhile, all of the industries that are associated with the production of food and drink, right through from agriculture, manufacturing, and to the serving of food and drink, and hospitality, are very dependent on migrants. So some of those sectors have, for example, 30% or more um, migrants from, from the EU. And employers do want some kind of reassurance about their future. Since the referendum, employers have been experiencing a higher rates of turnover among EU workers, and they found it more difficult to recruit replacements, both from UK workers and from EU workers living in the UK. So aside from the EU workers who are already here, what are the challenges for the government in deciding future immigration policy? The main challenge is meeting the expectations of the public in terms of reducing immigration while not damaging the economy. Because as I've said, um, employers are very dependent on migrant workers and there's key sectors of the economy which will be quite badly hit unless um, the UK comes up with workable immigration policies that enable employers to still recruit the, the labour that they need. So would it be better for the economy if immigration policy were to be sorted out quickly in this process? 
Well, first of all, it's not a simple process. There's a very wide range of options that the government could go for or negotiate with the with the EU. Um, there are visas, there are shortage lists, there are sector-based schemes. But there are two reasons why the government should take its time in developing new policy. First of all, if it's going to restrict immigration from the EU, then employers need some time to put alternatives in place. And we do know that employers would like to recruit more young people, but they have to get training schemes in place, they have to make their sectors attractive to young people, they have to develop career pathways and so on, and that is not something that can be done within the space of two years. It's going to take much longer. Secondly, and there are, there are signs um, that EU citizens are not seeing the UK as an attractive place to come and live and work. And we need to make sure that we have policies in place that will work to attract the migrants that we want. And again, that's not something that's going to be done very quickly. And we can only really see whether we can continue to attract the migrants that we want by looking at what happens to flows over the next two years and, and beyond. And finally, I get to sit down with NISA's director, Professor Jajit Chada. The triggering of Article 50 is only the latest of a long line of changes in tack, if you like, in our relationship with Europe. Is it the most important? Is it the last one that we'll see? Yes, I, we have almost been ambivalent with Europe from the beginning. We entered or tried to enter Europe late in the 1960s and were given two sets of Le Grand Nom from Charles de Gaulle, where he wasn't convinced uh, that we'd signed up to Europe in the way that the, the, the central axis of Europe, Germany and France, had considered. Um, and to some extent, the events of the last year have proved him right. We joined eventually in 1973. We still had a referendum in 1975, and the whole process of Europe uh, widening and deepening, which has involved Maastricht, the European Monetary Union are all questions which we have wrestled with in a complicated way without ever saying yes immediately. We've asked consistently the harder questions. And I think this reflects the point that in a sense we've always had one foot on the European continent and one foot perhaps wet in the Atlantic. We, we are an outward-looking maritime nation, I think, culturally. Uh, but that doesn't mean Europe's not important. It doesn't mean that the triggering of Article 50 is, in some sense, an end to our relationship with Europe. It will be, I may say, dominant, and the most important set of relationships that we shall have to construct. A very important thing that we'll have to have at the end of this process is the enduring peace and prosperity of the European mainland. In fact, what we would want, I would guess, is as strong a European Union as possible. We're not trying to put a wrecking ball through the European Union. We're just trying to re-establish a set of preferences in terms of our relationship with Europe that better match the problems that we think the UK economy is suffering from nearly 10 years after the start of the financial crisis. What do you think is at stake here in terms of um, uh, using this process as, as an opportunity rather than just a challenge? One of the things I think we've learned in the last year is clearly the extent to which large parts of the country felt detached from the growth that we have seen over the last quarter of a century. And how do we re-establish them in terms of them being global parts or having some uh, involvement in the global economy? It's to encourage internal trade as well as external trade. That might mean migration. It might mean the movements of goods and services. It might mean education. But to some extent, we cannot continue as a country with parts of it feeling detached from others. And I would say that is the overriding message to our negotiators today. Try to bring about a set of results that 
raise the opportunities and aspirations of the whole country, not just the metropolitan elite. One last thing, I'm going to ask you to look into the future. The year is 2060. What does Britain's relationship with Europe look like? Um, I think we'll have a strong trading relationship with Europe. Europe itself will um, maybe... Uh, the configuration of countries that we see may not be the configuration of countries that we now have. I could imagine the regional question continuing to be dominant. The question of the 19th century with the establishment of the set of nation-states that were thrown up and redesigned a number of times during the 20th century, World War I, World War II, and then after the Soviet uh, domination of Eastern Europe, we had another configuration. My guess is the more we continue to trade the bits of Europe, the more the regions will become more strong and there will be another set of relationships at the regional level, perhaps referring back to some period prior to the uh, creation of nation-states, but it's clear to me we will continue to be European at some deep level. This is all we've got time for, I'm afraid. If you'd like to read some of the research NISA has carried out on the economic consequences of Brexit, please visit our website on www.nisa.ac.uk. You can subscribe to Nisa's podcast on iTunes or on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. <laughs>